This week, carbon nanotubes made ship shape. You could have about 50 different species of nanotubes form in a reaction, and it's sometimes hard to separate those from one another. And a machine that can make anything, well, any chemical. What we're talking about here is a, is a real step change. It's something that one of the chemists involved says could in principle make any one of a billion defined small molecules on demand. Plus, a gallery of strange species and forgotten archives opens in London. This is The Nature Podcast for August the 7th, 2014. I'm Thea Cunningham. And I'm Kerry Smith. Stiff, strong and excellent at conducting heat and electricity, carbon nanotubes have long been hailed a wonder material. The single-atom-thick straws of carbon come in a jumble of forms, all slightly different in the twist of their cylindrical structure. This makes some metallic, while others are semiconducting, properties which make them useful for a variety of devices from solar cells to nanoelectronics. It's important to use the right kind of tube for the job, but growing carbon nanotubes creates a zoo of different types that need to be expensively sorted. Now a team at the Swiss Federal Laboratories for Material Science and Technology has a way to grow only specific types of nanotube using rows of precursor caps. James Tor of Rice University wrote a News & Views piece on the research and he told Lizzie Gibney how the technique improves on previous methods. You can have about 50 different types, 50 different species of nanotubes form in a reaction and it's sometimes hard to separate those from one another. In fact, it's generally very hard to separate those. The other problem then is if, if you had a particular species with a particular band gap for a device that you wanted, how do you get it into the place where you want it? So this technique that uh, was reported in Nature this week, that tries to get past some of those hurdles. How, how does it work? Okay, so it gets past the first part of the hurdles, uh, uh, getting access to a particular species. So what the authors did, which is really quite nice, is they, they used organic synthesis, which has been with us for 100 years, to design a molecule that is analogous to the end cap so even though these are like straws, they really don't have open ends. They, they'll have a, a uh, cylindrical cap on top. And uh, so they design that cap, and then they put these on a surface, in this case platinum, heat this up in the presence of a carbon source, and then carbon grows from underneath it, and it rises up. And so that's the top cap of the nanotube. And that structure predefines the structure of the nanotube that they are going to get. That's the clever thing about this, is that they pre-design the cap, and that cap then defines the nanotube type that they're going to get. So instead of getting a big jumble of different types of nanotube, you get this one specific type. But could you apply the same technique to making lots of different types of nanotube? Here they made a particular metallic one, but could you just change the precursor and, and create a different type? That is certainly the suggestion. What they did not demonstrate was changing the structure and getting a different nanotube type. But that, that seems to be implied, and it is likely that that would be the case. And a lot of the time at the moment, as I understand it, if you do want a particular type of nanotube, you can buy them in bulk from certain companies. But how does this method compare with that then? How do they create um, huge numbers of the same kind of nanotube? Okay, so, so you can buy them in bulk where people or companies are, are doing separations. So they take the vast mixtures 
and they separate and do do uh, different types of separations. Uh, but you're going to pay about a thousand dollars per milligram. So uh, bulk has to be qualified here. Absolutely. It does seem to be quite a, an advance then if we can make lots of this single same type just by growing it. Um, but what about the second problem then that you mentioned about um, actually getting the, the nanotubes exactly where you want them to, to create some kind of useful device? Right. So this is the, there's still hurdles here. So the authors, what they did is they grow the tubes vertically like a carpet on, on a metal substrate. But what happens is as these get longer, they tend to form bundles. Although you can keep them from getting entangled, they grow vertically and then they start to bundle because the the adhesion forces, the van der Waal forces between any two nanotubes is quite large. So now you've got these nanotubes that are bundled and debundling them is not that simple. And so generally what you have to do, you'd have to add either polymers that wrap them individually or you have to add very strong acids that will protonate the sidewalls and thereby cause them to debundle. And then you have to often remove the wrapper that was there. And, and all of these, each one of those steps is a hurdle that's not easily overcome. And that's what the retardation has been. So one of the reasons that silicon microchips are so popular is that we've, we've become very experienced at this kind of um, manufacturing. How many steps away or how far away do you think we are from being able to create chips and, and devices out of, uh, out of these very exciting materials that, that carbon nanotubes are? Let me put that in context. The reason we're so good in doing this with silicon is uh, one of the reasons is because we spent trillions of dollars and millions of collective person years doing it. The other reason is it's, it's not a bottom-up approach. It's top-down. So you take a large silicon wafer and you cut it up using resists and light, that's chemicals and light, to make the small features that you want where you want them. With nanotubes, you're actually going from the bottom up. You're building the structures bottom up. And now you have to integrate those with a top-down chip that has electrodes in place where you want them. So uh, it's probably going to be at least another decade before this can be done in mass to build devices and maybe even two decades. That was James Tor talking to Lizzie. Coming up in the research highlights, changeable manta rays and see-through bodies, and a tour of the Science Museum's newest and most beguiling gallery. But before that, your average organic chemistry lab is full of funny-shaped glassware, a bevy of bubbling solutions under the careful supervision of white-coated and goggled scientists, right? Well, some scientists hope to turn that picture on its head by creating instead a giant machine that can make any molecule. Chemists have synthesised just a sliver of the trillions of possible small organic compounds, which include medicines and other useful chemicals, and such a machine could help fill the gap. Freelance science journalist Mark Peplow tells Nature's Ewan Calloway all about the quest. For podcast listeners who haven't been lucky enough to take a class in organic chemistry, could you walk us through the process of synthesising a molecule from scratch? Organic molecules basically have a skeleton of carbon atoms and off those uh, hang lots of other atoms, either more carbon or hydrogen, oxygen, nitrogen and so on. So uh, you have in your mind an idea of what the finished molecule should look like. 
and you sort of break it down, you write it down on paper and you sort of carve it up to work out what those pieces should look like and what sort of chemical reactions you should use in what order to stitch them together again. And then you actually go and do that in the lab. I mean, it's like making an embroidered quilt. It's as much a craft as a science because you have to mix and distill and pour and filter. And, and you're doing a lot of these processes by hand. There is some degree of automation, but, it, but it's mostly by hand. So your feature is about the idea of creating a machine to do this process, this quilt making process that you just described, why would chemists want to replace uh, this artisanal process with a machine? Well, one of the main motivations is that it would be faster, but you can potentially uh, not only get there quicker, but you can get to a much broader range of types of molecules. You can potentially access things with more diverse molecular structures. There is some degree of um, automation, as I said. If you think about DNA synthesizers or protein sequence builders, th these are uh, robotic chemists. They're automatically making molecules, but these these use a handful of molecular building blocks using fewer than half a dozen reactions. What we're talking about here is a, is a real step change. It's something that one of the chemists involved says, you know, uh, could in principle make any one of a billion defined small molecules on demand. How would such a machine work? I mean, it would just have like this endless supply of, of starting reagents and catalysts. I see hands going everywhere, Jetson style. Yeah, there's a rather fun illustration uh, that goes with the feature. Uh, I d <laughs> it's not going to look like that, I have to say. <laughs> um, it's not like Dr. Octopus. Um, first of all, um, it has to be able to access a database of existing knowledge about how molecules can be built. Then you need an algorithm that can actually take all that knowledge and plan out its synthetic steps, just like a in the same way as a chess computer can plan a series of moves within a game and it's not just saying what should my next move be it's anticipating what problems might arise from its opponent and then finally you need you need the robotics you need um, a way of actually getting those reagents and mixing them together and purifying and uh, and coming out with a, a finished product is this synthesis machine, is this just a pipe dream of lazy organic chemists, or is this something that people are actually making progress on? It depends who you talk to. At their most bullish, some of the chemists that I've spoken to say that there's been enough progress towards these sorts of things that you could do a pretty simple but still very useful version of a synthesis machine in, in five years with adequate funding. And adequate funding might be as little as a few million dollars. Others say, no, it will be decades. One last question. If you could have any molecule synthesized, what would it be? <laughs> That's a really good question. If I could see a synthesis machine synthesize any one molecule, I would give it an iconically difficult molecule to make. I would give it Taxol. This is a cancer drug, right? Taxol is a cancer drug now, yeah. Why Taxol? Taxol is a fiendishly complicated molecule. It has lots of different interlocking rings where all the bonds between carbon atoms are at very specific orientations and angles. A huge challenge for organic chemists to be able to make, and it's probably one of the most important uh, chemical syntheses of the, of the 20th century. Find Mark Peplow's feature on artificial synthesis at nature.com slash news. 
Over the course of a prolific career, the artist Joan Fontcuberta has documented many sciences, botany, evolution, archaeology, cosmology and more, chronicling strange species, telling buried stories and unearthing forgotten archives. The Science Museum has just opened a new exhibition of his work in its gallery, Media Space. The Science Museum's Anna Schroeder took me on a tour to discover the theme that unites von Kuberta's work. OK, so um, here we are um, at a work called Fauna, which von Kuberta produced um, sometime in the 1980s when he actually went on holiday to the far north of Scotland and stayed in this absolutely dilapidated, very strange sort of B&B. And he uh, went to the cellar to explore the cellar and found this absolutely astonishing archive of this very eminent um, Professor Peter Ameisenhaufen. And what Dr Peter Ameisenhaufen discovered were a number of species um, that were really exceptions to the Darwinian theory of evolution, including a sort of monkey with a unicorn-like um, horn on his head and wings and a sort of snake with, with 12 feet. And you can see some of these photographs which are taken from the archive here. There's a vitrine here, the sort of um, canonical museum piece. This has a stuffed rat with a, with a tail that's actually a, a snake. I mean, it's hard to believe. Von Coberta, um isn't a natural history photographer. Um, they are, of course, not real at all. What von Comberto is very, very good at is presenting his investigation into the nature of photography and how we see and come to believe and make um, the world through the images that we see of the world um, by presenting it in a language that we're all very familiar with and that we understand. So we have fantastic stuffed animals that are, of course, completely fantastical. We have precise notes that borrow from um, the language that science would use to describe um, their findings. But, of course, there's always a joke in there. So there's a real punchline to when von Kuberta takes you off a journey um, of discovery when you later find out that you've been had... Do you have a nice example from Fauna or another series of his of that, of that realisation of like, <gasps> We had Joan Fontcoberta, the artist here, who's done a tour for some of my colleagues, some of which are um, scientists, and you could really see in their expressions as he led people through the exhibitions where you could really tell that they were believing the truth of the stories up until we come to mermaids, which we should go to now, and then the penny really dropped, and you could see also a certain amount of shame that they had been had. Well, but it's just testament to how well he does it, right? Absolutely, absolutely. So we're going to a series called Sirens, and on the way, just tell me what you know about how science and scientists have, have reacted to this. I mean, with fear, with kind of amazement, just the colleagues from, from the Science Museum themselves, were they annoyed? Not at all. I think um, what von Coberta does extremely well is that he takes you and your personal relationship um, with photography. Um, so I've got very sophisticated colleagues, and today most of us have very, very sophisticated understanding of photography. We all know that instead of being straightforwardly um, evidential and having a very straightforward relationship with truth, that 
photography has a very, very complex relationship to veracity, but it is still so seductive. And I think von Comberto wants us to, in some ways, quite brutally expose this construction of reality that is completely masked by you know, photography's claim to, to nature. You promised me mermaids. Yes. Should we take a little tour? Here we are in front of a series called Sirens. Yes, in 2000, Fontcouberta worked um, with a museum in Dijon in the south of France, which really is one of the most important um, geological and one of the most fossil-rich uh, regions in the whole of Europe. And um, Fontcouberta found there that a form of mermaid, um, also known as a sea monkey, had been discovered in this landscape by a priest. So this looks, from what I know about human skeletons at least, it looks like a human skeleton to about the waist, but then the vertebrae just, they just carry on. And at the end we've got this wonderful fanned tail. Yes, as you can see here, also um, some photographs taken underneath um, the sea, um, on the seabeds you can see remnants of these absolutely wonderful and wonderfully preserved fossils where you can see the tail. So he made the casts and placed them, I suppose, in these locations. Yes, and really they're still in these locations, they're still there, so people still can travel to this region and find these faked fossils. Since we're standing here in a museum surrounded by fakes, essentially, do you think that coming around this exhibition in the middle of the Science Museum might change how people perceive what they see in museums, what they see around them? Yes, I think it's very important that this exhibition is in the context of of a science museum is presented as such just because you get a double hit because as he so eloquently put a science museum would never photoshop unicorns onto a monkey but if it did then we would probably have to believe that this was true the news chat isn't far away and this week contains an unfriendly star more soon but first it's the research highlights read by noah baker Scientists have made mice and rats see-through without damaging any of their cells. Biologists have long wanted to image the whole body, but transparency techniques have only worked on single organs like the brain. Now, researchers in the US have tweaked an existing method. They pumped a cocktail of chemicals through dead rodents' circulatory systems. The chemicals stripped out fat molecules that block light, but left other tissues intact. A couple of weeks later, the rodents were see-through. Head to the journal Cell for the paper and photos. Like chameleons of the sea, manta rays can change their colours. Researchers in Florida watched five manta rays at an aquarium in the Bahamas. Nice work if you can get it. They noticed white markings on their backs, fins and head appear and disappear in the space of a few minutes. The changes occurred when the animals ate or when they interacted with other manta rays. The team think that colour change could represent a form of communication, or it might help them feed by attracting plankton to the whiter areas. Body colours are used by scientists to identify species, so understanding the change is crucial, they say. Find that paper in the Biological Journal of the Linnaean Society. Finally this week, as always, the news chat, and US Chief of Correspondents Matt Crenson joins me on the line from Washington. Hi, Matt. Hello. 
Now, the first story you're going to tell us about is the opening effort of a new patient-centred research initiative. So this is um, this is an organization that was set up a few years ago by the healthcare legislation that was passed in the the U.S. Uh, the one that's commonly called Obamacare, and what it does is it uh, creates an institute that is charged with using patients' health records in order to answer questions about the comparative effect- effectiveness of different treatments. And this is a little bit of a tricky situation because they want to be able to use these records without compromising people's privacy. The idea is that these millions and millions of healthcare records, they're going to use up to 30 million different people's health data. They're going to provide researchers with access to it through these networks that never actually take the data out of where it's already sitting. So... Nonetheless, these initiatives are pretty controversial. There's been a similar one in the UK um, set up by the NHS, Care.Data, which is actually the launch of that's been postponed because people were worried about privacy. I mean, is this the kind of thing where as a patient you can opt out of having your data be available or do you just get no choice? Um, This is something that's one of the things that they're working on, um, the ability for people to opt opt out. Also, how are they going to get people's informed consent? Whenever you do research using someone's personal information, you have to explain to them fully what the experiment is and how their data are going to be used um, and get their permission. Usually there's a signed form. This is a little bit tricky because what they want to do is provide researchers with the opportunity to ask countless questions and query these these enormous electronic databases. So they have to sort of figure out how to give people the opportunity to provide sort of blanket consent for any study that might be done using their data and then to follow up and let them know what how their data were used. The, the real problem that's been run into before with these things is that people want to know uh, what their data is being used for. And just last week, they chose the first topic that they will be studying. What what will they be looking at, Matt? Tell us a little bit about the topic. They're going to be looking at the use of aspirin to prevent heart disease. Um, When someone has already had a heart attack or they're they're at higher risk of heart disease, uh, often doctors will prescribe aspirin, which, uh, which thins blood and prevents clotting. But there are sort of two doses that people can go on, a lower dose or a higher dose, and there's a trade-off, it's thought, between the amount of protection you get with a higher dose, but also the additional risk of intestinal bleeding and other side effects. So this study is going to look at um, as many people as it can on both the low dose and high dose and see if there's additional protection from the high dose and also see if maybe there are additional uh, cases of side effects with the high dose and see whether it really matters which dose you're on. How long do they anticipate all of this taking? Um, This is a a study that's going to go on for a couple of years. And then uh, in September of next year, they're actually going to open up the database to researchers to ask all sorts of different questions. And you can imagine countless different questions about um, different ways to treat different diseases. Great. Well, uh, let's move on to story number two then. Ada Carini, not a girl's name, but the name of an unstable star. That's right. Uh, This is a star that, uh, it's a binary star um, that is behaving rather strangely this summer. Um, Every five and a half years, 
the the smaller secondary star swings close by the much larger primary star. They're uh, at their closest passage. They're about the distance from Mars to the Sun. This causes these uh, outbursts of X-rays and other radiation um, that astronomers are training their telescopes on all over the southern hemisphere where it's, it's visible this summer. I bet they are. Um, so this is a five-and-a-half-year sort of phenomenon, and uh, basically the larger of the two stars is a bit antisocial, and when the other one comes near, it sort of starts exploding in various ways. I think that's a good way to put it, yes. It, gets, uh, it seems to get a little bit upset. And there's a theory that is suggesting that this smaller secondary star actually bores a hole into the, uh, the larger star, uh, into its outer layers. Um, so they're looking to see if that sort of thing is uh, is happening this time around, and this star eventually is going to, uh, on an astronomical timescale, is going to go supernova. Uh, although there's there's really no danger of that happening in the next month. <laughs> and is this just the closest example of this kind of phenomenon? I mean, what could it tell us more generally about how stars interact? Well, the the interesting thing is that this primary star is enormous, um, and it's uh, it's ninety times the mass of the sun. So. Stars like this are, were typical in the early universe, just after the Big Bang. Really, the first stars that formed after the Big Bang were of this scale, and they're very rare today. So it gives uh, an unusual glimpse at what stars might have been like early in the universe's history, and astronomers are very interested in that. Great. Well, Matt Crenson, thank you ever so much. And listeners, more as always, you know this by now, at nature.com news. That's it from us. Drop us a line, podcast at nature.com or tweet us at naturepodcast. I'm Thea Cunningham. And I'm Kerry Smith.